Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and I am in wonderful, wonderful, and I say that sarcastically, Las Vegas. Yeah, the sarcasm was dripping off your voice. What's wrong, Jerry? You're not a, not a Las Vegas fan? I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan, but it, it's okay. Uh, I will probably go wherever they put these magic fests. So I don't know. I don't really care that much. I, I get to see the inside of a convention center and a hotel, and it really doesn't matter that much to me. And I hope that everyone else inv- enjoys Las Vegas, which it seems like they do. So, Yeah, people get hyped for the Las G- Vegas GPs every year. I know what you're saying, though. It's just like if it was a more passive location, I want to say, like Las Vegas inserts itself in everything. There's casinos everywhere. There's the oppressive, oppressive heat. And you just feel like you're in Las Vegas the entire time you're there. It's inescapable. Whereas kind of a faceless backdrop for a magic tournament is generally completely acceptable because you spend all your time in the convention center anyway. Yeah, pretty much. So this this tournament is a little weird. Uh, we have a modern main event and an MH1 sealed main event. And looming over this modern event is the fact that there's a BNR announcement on the 26th. So five days from this recording and this modern format is typically what is considered a fake format where it's like, yeah, we, we can play it, but everything's going to be different in four days. So like, why are we doing this? You know? And there is a best deck in Hogak And the way that people interact with the fact that there is a best deck, and granted, this is certainly an outlier because Hogak is powerful enough to get banned, most likely. How people react to that is super interesting. I agree with you. And like you said, this is a really over-the-top example of best deck phenomena. But you look at many of the past formats, by the end of the format, oftentimes it congealed around best deck. I think the most prominent recent example would be black red aggro. I think that was a pretty clear best deck. Everyone knew it by the end of the format and you were either with it or, or against it basically. And I felt like the present standard format was pushing a little bit in that direction. I kind of don't feel that way anymore after just a wild, wild MCQ weekend taken down, well, not taken down. It was it was won by a bunch of folks, but I think the breakout story was certainly the Kethis deck. And that does a lot to refute the idea of Bant Scapeshift, maybe holding the title at the end of this format. So less inclined to apply it to present standard, but certainly you go back across standards history and you can come up with many, many instances of a clear best deck. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes those instances end up with things getting banned, like Teamer Energy, Mono Red with Hazret, Aetherworks Marvel, etc. Yeah, yeah. We certainly had a lot of that over the past few years. Yeah, so when it when it comes down to it, and there is a best deck, and it's winning at a clip of 55%, why would you play anything else other than this deck that looks so good on paper, or at least looks better than everything else on paper? Well, I think there's a few answers to that. One is just fear, right? People play fear. People fear what they don't know. If the deck falls outside of your typical wheelhouse, maybe you convince yourself that it makes more sense to just stick with your preferred archetypes as opposed to picking up this best deck. There's misinformation. People might think they beat the best deck. And then there's also just being correct and figuring out ways to hard target the best deck. I think all of those are, I guess, varying 
levels of defensible, but they all definitely happen. Yeah, I think I, at least the tournaments where I am most successful, I am generally playing a good version of the best deck, you know, like slightly tweaked or updated somehow where currently it's like there's, there's Hogak, right? And then there's a decent amount of Tron and a decent amount of Burn. And those were two decks that kind of popped up as a response to this because everything else was just losing to it, you know? So like something has to actually be able to compete with it. And those are kind of the two bad matchups for the deck. And I would just like tune my Hogak deck to be a little bit better against both of those archetypes, maybe a little bit better in the mirror too. And thinking about those scenarios, it's like, I always win when I play the best deck, you know, like I don't think I've ever had a scenario really where it's like, oh, in Eldrazi, I'm going to play the Malira deck that people thought beat Eldrazi and it just didn't. Yeah. Well, that speaks to that misinformation point, right? People assume certain things, but in fact, People did find success with the Eldrazi, or excuse me, with the Malera deck during that format. It won the Eldrazi winner GP. And that's one instance of success. That's not actually finding the truth of the situation. But you see why this idea is appealing to people when you can point to results like that. Yes. In, all, in fairness, there were, I think, three Eldrazi GPs, and that was the only one that Eldrazi didn't win. Okay. Okay. And I lost to a mirror in top eight. Well. There you go. Uh, (laughs) One of the problems is that the mirror will often eliminate other versions of the same deck and it becomes this really twisted, perverse environment where because so many people are playing the best deck, they kind of pick each other off a lot of the times. Yeah, they they cannibalize each other for sure. Uh, In the case of Red Black Aggro, you basically couldn't play Bomac Courier anymore because of how bad it was against Chain Whirler. And then since the deck had to go a little bit bigger and be less aggressive, you lost a lot of percentage points against things like God Pharaoh's Gift and Blue Black Midrange and stuff like that. So whether or not to Bowmat because of the fact that mirrors existed and were so prevalent was actually huge during that time. That points also to the bridge from below scenario where, and this is all very nebulous. We're never going to prove this out because no one's going to go back and play bridge versus non-bridge matchups and figure out exactly which is better. But we talked about how the mirror may have been a large incentive of forcing you to play bridge because once your opponent is playing bridge, you kind of have to, or you may have some weaknesses as a mirrored version of the Hogak deck without those bridges. So it's the same type of scenario where you were priced into contemplating the mirror and it may have actually pushed you off the best version of the deck. Yeah. uh, And then that's how things got a little obfuscated and they end up banning bridge from below. The deck is even more of a problem now, I think, than it was then. And hopefully Hogek gets banned on Monday, but we'll see. I think that is the assumption for everyone at this point. I don't know. They've surprised us before, but who knows? I think, I think this one is fairly obvious. You can't, really try and take like a surgical approach and be like, oh, just ban Seder Wayfinder and like weaken the deck because we still want it to succeed. It's like, no, just stop, get it out, just be done with it. Uh, But yeah, uh, right now the mirrors are kind of doing that to some degree because they have things like main deck Leyline of the Void, which is not good against a, a whole lot of other people. And I've had some people message me asking if they like need to main deck Force of Vigor in order to beat their opponent's main deck ley lines or whatever and it's like you're going too far just back up a little bit you know you still need to be able to beat everyone else and you just can't do that when you're just 
devoting all of these slots, trying to level uh, every other person in the mirror match. No, absolutely right. And our goal today, I think, is to set up a bit of a playbook for these scenarios. Because like you mentioned, there is a lot of misinformation, a lot of flawed assumptions that come around best deck formats. And I think we've set up a useful little step-by-step guide to breaking down these quote-unquote best deck formats. Yeah, and obviously this is going to vary to some degree. I mean, if the best deck is something along the lines of Eldrazi or Hogak, I find it hard to to argue against doing anything other than playing these decks. In the scope of like, maybe more just in the vein of standard, things like Teamer Energy and Red Black Midrange, I mean, you can kind of make the case where it's like these decks are good, but they're not just straight busted, right? Right, a little bit different than the present scenario, but... I think our first step accounts for this question. And this is really a pretty brief process that we're going to advocate for today. It's a four-step process, and some of these steps are fairly complicated and have a lot of sub-steps. That's fine. That's how we do things here on the Arena Decklist podcast. But why don't we just get into them, and we'll talk through them as we go. I think the first step, step one, when you're dealing with these best deck formats, you have to play the best deck. You have to actually sit down put the deck in your hands and play games with it. And I think that experience is completely, completely indispensable for several reasons. Would you agree, Jerry? Yes. I I think that this is the step that people skip. Right. And it's just not acceptable. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the, the thing is there's certain aspects of the play experience that you will never, ever understand unless you're playing games with the deck. And I want to point to a recent standard example that we can talk about, although certainly we'll be able to relate Hogak to this. But if you're more of a standard focus player, this one will really ring true with you. I think back to Scapeshift when the deck first showed up just about two months ago. There was briefly an assumption I heard bandied about that Esper Control was the way to beat Scapeshift. And I'm not talking Esper Control hard geared for the matchup with a bunch of Fall of Thran in the sideboard and Deputy of Tension everywhere and all kinds of Legion's End. I'm talking for Wrath, Esper Control was legitimately bandied about as a way to control Scapeshift because, oh, you just Wrath away their board. You have your own Teferis. It'll all be fine. If you have ever played that matchup from the Scapeshift side, you knew immediately that was not going to be a threat for you long-term. You had plenty of options to play around Esper Control with only a little teensy-weensy bit of interactions. Wraths were almost meaningless. You would just play a slow control game. Your Hydroid Crasises were absolutely incredible against them. It just didn't contemplate the reality of the Scapeshift deck and the multitudinous game plans it was able to put forth. It completely missed that picture and it focused on one small window and that was that Scapeshift window. And if you had played Scapeshift, there was no way you were buying into that argument. Yeah, I uh, a gross misunderstanding of what the deck actually does and what a deck is capable of leads to those scenarios a lot where looking at like GP Denver coverage, right? It's like, oh, and then Luis scapeshifted, made 80 zombies with Teferi and playing killed his opponent. And it's like that happened over and over and over again. But as people get used to both like playing with scapeshift, playing against it, people start tuning their decks on both sides. It's like, yeah, you realize that in those situations, 
if you get wrath and you were just all in on your scapeshift and you had nothing else after that, then yeah, you were going to lose. But the, the scapeshift decks like added a little bit more on top of it where it's like, oh, then they start adding like Teferi Hero of Dominarias and stuff like that. They try and set it up so they have Teferi Time Raveler first so they get to scapeshift end of turn or they're just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'll scapeshift into your wrath and just get a bunch of Field of the Deads and then you have to wrath me every single turn. And I think that that was, that was the turning point. Yeah, there's just a level of knowledge that was missing early on, and that's fine. I, I think that's the way these things go. You have to build up that knowledge base. And similarly to Hogak, I think, and this is going back a while now, when this deck first showed up, and even when we were assessing Hogak as a card, it's easy to just go, oh, Graveyard Hate, done. What's the problem? And it, it's been a long time since that's the way we felt about Hogak. We've known this has been a problematic deck for some time now. But certainly initially, if you had not played games with it, I think that's an assumption many, many people made. Yeah, I mean, Graveyard Hate is good against the deck. And you see a lot of people playing Leyline of the Void in decks that wouldn't necessarily play it, even if a format was infested with Dredge or something similar. And it is because things like Rest in Peace, Relic, Nile Spellbomb to some degree, Surgical Extraction, like all of these cards might not even accomplish what you're trying to accomplish where they might just play a turn two Hogak through them. And Leyline is the right. only thing that can really stop that. So Graveyard Hate is decent. It is still good, but to really be good against Hogak, you need it to be Leyline and Leyline is just not a card that you can play in your main deck. And like the, the same is true about a lot of the Graveyard Hate stuff. Like when people are playing main deck Surgical Extraction and in this situation, uh, Surgical is not even close to good enough you know something is like a little off about the format, right? And this is a format where people are playing main deck Leyline of the Void, which is just an even more narrow card. Yeah, so beyond these specific points that we're talking about, this is a lot about specific card for card interactions and means of hate and adaptations. I think you also need to get some broader understanding Things like, what is the fundamental turn for this deck? Because while Hogak wins on usually turn four, I think turn four is a pretty yeah. fair estimation, the game is ostensibly over on turn two a lot of the time. Even if you're not winning in that spot, you've just created an unassailable battlefield, and that's not going to be answered by really anything in the format in a lot of instances. And I think knowing that fact is very important. You need to know how effectively a deck can sideboard. And again, this goes back to the thing about Hogak being vulnerable to graveyard hate. As soon as you played some sideboard games and you're like, oh, this is a decent beatdown deck that even without Hogaks can probably just aggro you out on turn five, that changes the thing. The entire question you're trying to answer, really, like, what are we doing here? Well, we need to account for an aggro plan and a graveyard plan. And it's the scapeshift thing, too. We need to account for explosive combo potential and the ability to grind out a really long game. And until you're playing games with this deck, I, I just think you're missing those little intricacies to some extent. Yeah, w- without having those games where I had rest in peace on the draw and lost because it was too mm-hmm. slow or... I had rest in peace on the play. They blew it up with force of vigor and then played an eight, eight and I lost, or I ley lined them and I lost, you know, you really don't understand exactly how good this deck is. If you don't know all of the things that it's actually capable of, and you can look at win percentages from the MC and, you know, 56%, I think is what it was overall. And obviously that's 
very good, very strong for a deck in modern where every other deck is also like kind of busted doing unfair things. But yet you really don't understand exactly what's going on. And, you know, the same thing for us, right? We're just like, oh, yeah, it's like maybe a fine card, but like ley line, et cetera, just move on. And it's like, well, we didn't actually build a deck with this card. We didn't actually play games with it. We didn't try and see if ley line actually just KO'd it or whatever. We just made a lot of negligent assumptions, I guess. Yeah. Look, I don't want to take these type of assumptions out of the equation because one of the things about magic is that it's so large that you can't possibly test everything. It's it's not realistic. You're not going to know every single matchup. You're not going to be able to build a deck with every single new card that comes out. You have to have some shortcuts. You have to make some assumptions and you have to try and just expedite your process a little bit so you can get to some meaningful conclusions a lot faster. Yeah. And I think that is correct until you get into the situation where there is very clearly a best deck because then it's, it's so important to just have all of the knowledge surrounding this, right? That you just can't afford to take shortcuts anymore. Like this is the only information that really matters versus like going through the set spoiler or whatever and trying to rank all the cards one to five, you know? Right. Right. And I think what I was going to say is that these assumptions are fine as long as you are constantly revisiting them. You can't say, oh, in week one, we declared this card to be mediocre, so it's mediocre. No, you need to reevaluate all the time, admit your mistakes, own your mistakes, and just re-up on your assessments of cards and decks. And sometimes that means just sitting down and playing some magic. And when you're dealing with a best deck format, I think that's inescapable. It's one of the reasons why I made sure during my last few MCQs, I was just playing Hogak. It was important to me to speak intelligently about this format and what we were going to do going forward. I think I needed to just have those reps under my belt. And the messed up thing is, is that after the tournament was over, we were talking about it and you were like, yeah, I should have practiced more. Right. Right. I would have benefited from just playing more games with the best deck. And I mean, is there anywhere that's more obvious than with the best deck? Because you know, this is the good thing to do. Like it's very clearly been established. You're going to get rewarded. And here, I I guess the incentives were a little, they were a little perverted by the fact that we know there's this ban looming over us. So it's not quite the same situation, but in a format like standard, when you're identifying something like black red or team or energy is the best deck, like you will get paid on your reps. And even if I'm not willing to put scape shift as the de facto best deck at the end of the day in present standard format, if you were playing that deck early on, you have been paid on your reps. I promise you. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with that completely. For me, it's kind of a weird situation where you had was like a month after the MC where there are various modern tournaments, maybe it was six weeks. And yeah, we knew this ban was looming. We assume that something, some sort of action is going to get taken. And I don't have meaningful tournaments in that time frame. Whereas right. if I did, if I had MCQs or there was another MC or something that I needed to play and like I really wanted to do well at this tournament, it would be different. Like, obviously I would get paid by putting in the reps, but instead I'm just like completely off it. You know, like I've played some on magic online, basically, you know, for the MC and like what you said, where it's like, you know, we need to be competent to be able to talk about these things. Right. And there, there are just certain things that happen where it's like, Oh, like, you know, lot troll 
starts getting a lot of press and like these green black versions with no looting get a lot of press. And it's like, I want to try this. I just actively want to play with them to see how different they are and why. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just, it just kind of kills like any sort of excitement I would have for playing in this modern GP. But granted I was already leaning towards not playing anyway. Yeah. A convenient excuse has arrived on your doorstep in the form of Hogak. How good for you. I haven't played a GP main event in a while. I could have played it the last two or three MCs. I could have played in Seattle. I just didn't, man. I like hanging out more. And there's like no reason for me to play in them. I understand. Hopefully we'll get that update soon. You know, we did our cast talking about OP changes last week. We spoke a lot about the fact that we really wanted to know what was happening with GPs and will there be incentives to play GPs. In the aftermath of our cast, it has come out pretty firmly that yes, something is being worked on and will be forthcoming. So we'll have to see what that is. Just a little bit of an update on our discussion last week. Yeah, we should have led with that actually, because they were very active on the Magic Esports Twitter account. And I don't know who is on that account now, but yeah, they were answering everyone's questions. And we, we talked about how like, you know, they didn't apologize or whatever in the OP announcement and the Twitter account apologized and everything. So it I was... Very happy, very pleased with how things were happening. You know, people were able to interact and ask questions and get their stuff answered. So hopefully that continues. Yeah, it felt very different from the past. I'll say that. And it felt like responses, meaningful responses were being given. It felt like concerns were being listened to. I was already praising the announcement. I really liked the follow-up as well. Just a little aside. Yep. Where were we? We were in step one. And I was going to ask you if there was anything else you wanted to say about this hard and fast rule of getting your reps in with the best deck. I think it's super important and it is important to not skip this step because like we said, it basically informs all of the rest of your decisions. Right. And for whatever reason, people are so quick to just be like, I'm not playing the best deck. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Like people, especially in the case of something like Hogak, right? Where, uh, you look at ley line in the void and it's like, oh, everyone's going to have four ley lines. I can't possibly win. It's like, well, you know, figure out a way to do that, to win, despite your opponent having ley line. People will immediately jump on a deck that they enjoy playing more or they they have that sort of like hipster-esque thing where it's like they want to do well with not the best deck because the best deck is kind of like easy mode. And it's like, I have some of that. Cedric definitely has some of that. That's a natural response that I understand. And the other thing is like, people don't want to play mirror matches. That's just a thing in magic. I don't understand because like, what's, what's the difference between like playing against Hogak when you're playing Hogak or playing against Hogak when you're playing Tron or whatever, you know, it's like, I have no idea. I have never understood that. I hate mirror matches and don't want to play them thing. It's so strange to me. It's like, oh, it's, I I think a lot of the the common complaint is it's all about the die roll in a lot of instances. And it's like, so are a lot of other matchups. Right. What's your point? Who cares? Like, maybe it just feels bad to have like the same cards as your opponent and like end up losing. You know, you just don't want to be in that situation. It's just to feel bad, but I don't know. I don't get it. Maybe that's an interesting theory. Anyway, that's, that's kind of besides the point here. Uh, it is yeah. a very real thing, but I, I think it's something that people would do well to take out of their excuse bank. You're still just playing magic. It's really not any different. I want to move to step two because this is the step 
that just gets butchered. And it's it's absolutely a bit of a train wreck when we get to step two. And I think this is the step that all of us could do a much, much better job on, you and I included. Uh, step two, identify true bad matchups for the best deck, if any. At that point, ask yourself, why aren't these decks a part of the metagame? And I, I think the if anything is a very, very big disclaimer. In the case of Hogak, you and I sat here in the pre-MCQ show. We talked about Jund probably having a fine matchup in post-board games and you know being able to manage Hogak. We talked about Blue-White being able to play Rest in Peace and things like that and manage Hogak. None of these things were true. Neither of those decks has anything near an acceptable matchup. Jerry, I know you you made the argument. I don't know if you still feel this way. You made the argument that blue-white decks were being built wrong. I think that's true, but I also think it doesn't matter, quite frankly. I, if you went to Terminus, you still aren't making up ground as the blue-white deck. Hogak just presents too many problems, and there there is no magic sauce for the blue-white deck. And Hogak's true bad matchups, like actually bad matchups are basically non-existent. There's mediocre matchups, but I don't think there's actually any bad matchups for the deck. Well, Jund did well at the Pro Tour, which is maybe neither here nor there. And I think that the blue-white deck can certainly adapt to Hogak to a point where it is a favorite. And that requires more than just changing Wrath for Terminus. Obviously, like you have to change a lot of other things with that. And there are people like Greg Kowalski who are very good at magic and who I trust at being able to find the true matchup from at least their point of view. And he said, like, yeah, game one is bad. Like, everyone's game one is bad against it. And then post-board, you're like 60% or whatever. And he's reasonably happy with that. And there's also, like, more things that you can do, you know? And he was just like, these are the things that are important. And I'm not sure how much differently he is playing than other people. But I don't know. It just seemed like he had the same cards as everyone else. He had like rest in peace, surgical, celestial purge, whatever. And he was just like, yeah, I, I just like beat them a decent amount. So I don't know. I, I would assume that that matchup goes even further in your direction if you actually make conceits to it. But then again, you get into the, the same spot where it's like, well, how much worse do you get against literally everyone else? Right. And that's the question every deck needs to answer presently. I think that, though, we're looking to get at something a little stronger than a fine matchup for John or a fine matchup for Blue-White. In this step, we're looking to identify the actual hateful deck, the deck that this deck sees on the other side of the table and says, oh, man, I'm in for it. I'm going to have to get a little lucky here. And conceptually, I don't know if that deck exists in this scenario. Maybe. I mean, I'm sure you could build a deck that is like you know, 90% against it or whatever, but then you're losing to a lot of other things. And there are some, some decks that, like you said, have reasonable matchups. I think burn and Tron are those two decks. And then, mm-hmm. uh, there Mono are other Red things Phoenix, like mono red prowess. Yeah. It's the same thing as burn. Same, same. Right. 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 And Urza is another one where it's like, you, you play a bunch of bad artifacts that don't do anything already. Like what if they were just all graph diggers cages or whatever? You're like, you're just mono cages and snaring bridges and welding jars, you know, can, can you actually beat the rest of the field a reasonable amount of the time while just, you know, playing like 
six extra cards just for Hogak. Can we take an aside for a second? Is there a possibility that this Urza deck is also just broken? Because some of the numbers that have come back on Urza, it's getting a much smaller representation than Hogak, obviously. And I also think a lot of metagame space is opened up for Urza by the presence of Hogak. But the numbers that have come back on the Urza decks have also, quite frankly, been kind of overwhelming. Well, if you need to make room for Graveyard Hate, What's getting cut? Probably artifact the artifact hate. hate. Yeah. Yeah. And someone asked me when was the last time you saw a stony silence? And I I have no idea. That card yeah, doesn't exist anymore. You see some collector oofs and force of vigor is obviously a thing, and all the Hogak decks are trying to make sure that they don't get got by ley line and whatnot. So they have assassins trophies and nature's claims and stuff like that. But that's it. Like if that deck actually took off, I mean you don't even see like the Shatterstorm in Is it Phoenix's sideboard? It's like Maybe an a braid, like a single copy of a braid. Really, that's your your only way to be a permanent. That's just how the format is. So I don't know if the format's ever going to circle around to a point like maybe Hogak gets banned. People kind of like ease off the graveyard hate. Urza starts winning, and then people are back to playing Stony Silences and Shatterstorms, and maybe the deck suffers hugely as a result of it. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that sort of deck is much better at shrugging off those sorts of things than something like Affinity is. Yeah, that sounds correct to me. I don't know. I I just think it's interesting that obviously Hogak's going to be the headline story. And the most recent GP, it it went from 10.3% of the day one field to 21.9% of the day two field. What a ludicrous, ludicrous expansion. Uh, That trend continued, by the way, as you move to top eight. And it was three of eight decks in the top eight. And then it was half of the finals. So, you know, you're approaching 50% towards the end. Didn't win the tournament. I think that the numbers are so preposterous for Hogak that they've kind of blunted a lot of the other stuff that's going on. Part of that being a really nice, maybe final form for these mono red Phoenix decks and a solid Urza deck that's lurking in the background. Yeah, but there's just not like people put up solid results with Urza. And I, I think back to like a lot of the MC results where you, you saw some cool versions from a bunch of different people and you can't really pinpoint exactly what the best version of that deck is at the moment. And it's, it's very hard, right? Like you have a lot of different moving pieces. There's a, a lot of different options for what color to splash and what for and, you know, just how many planeswalkers do you play, etc. Like there's just so much stuff going on with that deck and until someone wins like a Grand Prix with it or something, some major tournament, I don't think anyone is ever just going to settle on, oh, this is the best version of this deck. Like, let's let's all play this version. Instead, people mm-hmm. are just like, oh, I'll ex- do my own little experiments, see what colors work. And it basically leads to like there being a lot of untuned versions of the deck out there. Right. And I wonder what happens when these decks do finally get tuned. Circling back around to the question, though, identifying the true bad matchups is what we're attempting to do here. We're taking the position there may not be any hard bad matchups in the modern metagame presently. You say there's a theoretical deck that could exist that's a hard targeting deck. Real quick, like sketch that out. What what are you envisioning in this? You don't have to care about the rest of the format. All you have to do is beat Hogak. What does your deck look like? Like I said, I think you can build some sort of Urza deck or artifact-based deck that has 
a lot of hate cards against Hogak and it doesn't actually mind having them. But when you start talking about, you know, building decks with four ley lines in your deck or whatever, it's like, you're not going to be able to beat much of anything else. So you need to, in situations like this, you need to look for things that just have like a naturally good matchup against something like Hogak. And exactly. A, cu- a couple of the weak points that the deck has uh, is that basically none of its creatures block. You have, you know, maybe a Hogak that can come down and block something, but like swarming them in a very fast manner is pretty effective. And they deal themselves a decent amount of damage with their mana base, especially the four color versions. So things like Burn ends up being like a little bit worse, I think, but like Mono Red uh, Prowess or Phoenix, whatever, ends up being pretty good against it. And then the Devoted Druid combo decks, I think, where you play Devoted Druid on turn two and then you're just threatening a turn three kill and... Hogak doesn't have a whole lot of ways to actually interact with it, and it is banking on beating people with virtual wins, not actual wins. So I think a matchup like that also seems pretty bad for them. Yeah, on that basis, I would have also expected Infect to be a very good choice against Hogak. Data has not borne that out, at least the, the small sample size of data that we presently have. Personally, I lost four total matches in my MCQs. Two of them were to infect and it felt brutal and almost unwinnable. I think it's gotten better since more collective brutalities have entered the deck, but on the whole, that seems like a pretty tough matchup for Hogak as well. But we're not trying to actually get at the specifics here because we're not trying to solve this problem. We're trying to give a playbook for solving all best deck problems. And the reason we're doing this here is because we want to get at those principles you t- you were talking about, Jerry, going wide, you know, at taking advantage of the fact they aren't interactive with creatures. They don't play a lot of removal spells because when we get to step three, our goal is now to use information gained in step one and two to tune other existing decks with promising matchups against the field. Because remember, if these decks just had good matchups against the field, then these are actually the best decks, right? If you're beating Hogak and you're strong against the field, why aren't you just playing that deck? And in the case of like Mono Red Phoenix, Mono Red Prowess, there might be an argument there, quite frankly. I think that deck is very impressive right now and in a very good position. But what we're trying to do is evolve other archetypes to take advantage of those strategic points of interaction that you were speaking about and push things a little bit further in that direction. So can you build humans to be a little bit more aggressive? Can you... Even go even more glass cannon on your devoted druid builds and really exploit their inability to interact. And in a lot of ways, I actually think Mono Red Phoenix is born of this desire. Like it's the Is It Phoenix decks adapting, or maybe you could say the Burn decks. I think both those comparisons are apt, but it's those decks adapting to really exploit what Hogak was not capable of interacting with. Right. And a lot of it too is just based on what sideboard cards people have access to, where mm-hmm. you mentioned the overall lack of collective brutality. And that, that's a card that's popping up now because burn wasn't a thing that was on anyone's radar. And like some people played Monored prowess, but like no one was really playing infect either. And now that Hogak was weak to those decks, they started rising up a little bit more and then Hogak adapted. Right. So now the burn numbers are actually pretty reasonably in favor of Hogak and, Prowess is still down, I think. And in fact, you know, you mentioned like that matchup seems horrendous. And I agree with you, no matter really how many brutalities you have. 
But for things like the Devoted Druid deck, I think it's very easy to just be like, yeah, there's basically nothing that they can do to their deck short of, you know, adding five more removal spells or whatever. And the Hogak is just never going to do that. So yeah, Devoted Druid, focusing on ways to be better in that matchup, not necessarily playing like the Simeon Spirit Guide, maybe Chalice of the Void stuff, but like just making sure that you're not playing like Teferi and Karn and uh, the the slower Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl versions, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that is a playbook for answering the best deck meta. The problem is that now you have to wonder if you've made yourself particularly bad against the rest of the field. And this works really well, this kind of adaptation of decks that have reasonable matchups already. It works really well when the best deck is being underrepresented, when people are leaning on those excuses that we talked about. And in this scenario, where Hogak was only 10% of the field for a GP, you can make a pretty good case that at least on round one, you could do very well by just making sure you have a broader game plan and a little tiny bit of focus on Hogak, a little window to push against. Uh, The problem comes when you get to day two and the cream rises to the top. And if you want to win the tournament, I think that's that you're particularly incentivized to start pushing in the direction of Hogak rather than trying to play towards the field at large. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like the situation itself is just very murky, especially when you take into consideration all the things that can happen in the metagame while you're also trying to figure it out because you're going to say, I, I don't want to invest in Hogak, or I don't want to learn it, or it's actually not that good, whatever the best deck may be. Like you you have a reason for playing a deck that is not the best deck, right? Maybe you identify that the Vizier deck is good against the field and good against Hogak, very likely the best choice. Well, while you're doing that, everyone else is probably doing the same thing, you know? So like the, the metagame that you're assuming that Vizier is going to be good against might not exist you know, by the time you show up to the tournament, right? It's like the decks that you think Devoted Druid is is good against, you know, those decks might not exist. There might be a lot more like Jund and Burn and things of that nature where it's like, oh yeah, I, I built this deck to be kind of like a metagame deck and I just got it completely wrong and it ends up backfiring. Yeah, you certainly have to find the right level. It's why if you were asking me to choose among these decks we're positing with good matchups, I'm leaning in the direction of mono red phoenix it's just a bit more resilient uh harder for other decks to interact with and getting your opponent dead on turn three or four solves a lot of issues across the rest of the format any stumbles any missteps you know we talk about leyline of the void as being a card that some people view as main deckable well if you have a dead card in your hand against phoenix that just might cost you the game if you have a leyline of the void instead of a removal spell that could be your death knell so it's nice to have decks with proactive plans that are able to still push on these strategic limitations of that best deck. Well, kind of on that note, do you want to hear about the non-Hogak deck I have sleeved up and almost ready to go? I would love to hear that. Well, first, give us a, a confidence rating on this deck. How stoked are you about this particular choice? Oh, God. It's either a five or a nine. Mm, that's a pretty broad spread you've presented us with. Well, I, I, I'm actually happy that it's not a three or a nine or a three or an eight, you know? That's, okay. That's okay, so tell us about it. That's generally what I'm worried about in these situations where it's like if I miss or if I'm wrong, it's just really bad. 
Whereas in this scenario, I think I can only get it so wrong to the point where the floor is kind of reasonable. Like me registering an average five in a modern tournament might be above average for me. Uh, Well, that's interesting. Is it leaning on some of these principles I talked about? Do you have a proactive plan is what I would ask. So a little bit. Uh, After the MC, I did a little bit of research. I looked at all of the decks that uh, people played in the tournament because they posted all of the the main decks, at least, and the the cards that people played in their sideboard, but not the numbers. And there were two very interesting cards that people played in Is It Phoenix? And they were Set Adrift and Vapor Snag, which both of them to me just seemed so clever and just so genius because Blue Red obviously can't do a lot of things to remove an 8-8 Trampler and can't really block with Arclight Phoenix because the card has trampled for some reason. So a lot of the times Phoenix was banking on bringing back two Phoenixes on turn two, or they're banking on thing in the ice, being able to tempo their opponent out. And obviously there were like right. some sideways things where it's like, you know, maybe your surgical extraction gets them or you have sideboard ley lines now or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah. For the most part, it was just, I am going to play this tempo game with these bounce spells. And I rebuilt Phoenix from the ground up. And I think there are different ways to do this where you could go more towards something like Monastery Swiss Spear and maybe that just leads you down Mono Red Prowess or whatever. And that's completely fine. That's a good direction to take. But I do think that Blue Red, not playing Aria Flame or anything like that, like just remove the grindy elements, play Set Adrift, play some Vapor Snags or a Vapor Snag, whatever, and then my additional threats that I have right now are one Snapcaster Mage and one Crackling Drake. And then those kind of feed into this sideboard plan where I have another Crackling Drake and two young Pyromancers. And, you know, those those let me be okay against things like Jund, where, you know, obviously Crackling Drake is quite good against them. Maybe they cut their lightning bolts because they're pretty bad against you. And then young Pyromancer can do some work and... You know, stuff like that. I, I tried to rebuild the deck in such a way where I was respecting everything else that was going on in the format. Like I have Dragon's Claw for Burn because you just need it. Do you, would you say that this was a result of a step three oriented process? Do you think you kind of went through this step-by-step analysis of the best deck before we had even laid out this game plan? Yeah, I mean, that was basically my Saturday post-MC was going through all of this information and it's like, can I play Hogak? Yes. We'll, we'll come back to that. And then looking at the true bad matchups, it's like, well, I don't want to play any of these decks or I feel like there are decks that are bad matchups for Hogak, but they are bad against everything else. And then it's like, well, what, what are ways that I can tune different existing decks? You know, like which decks have promise. And the thing that always jumps out to me is like, Blue-White Control, right? Like, Blue-White Control has Path to Exile. It has a clean answer to Hogak. You have Snapcaster to help clean up uh, Vengevines and stuff. Terminus is a great reset. You have Rest in Peace. Like, it just seems like that sort of deck should be good against it. And then you can do what we did, where it's like, yeah, Mono Red Prowess or Burn. Like, that seems fine. Vizier seems fine. And then I saw these these various lists of Is It Phoenix, uh, Pascal Virens and Alan Wu's that had set of drift and vapor snag. And it's like, is it Phoenix was not one of those decks that immediately jumped out to me as, Oh yeah, you can very easily tune this. Like sometimes you have to like go a little deep and actually, you know, use these cards that people in some cases haven't even played in the archetype like vapor snag. 
I have some facts to bring to you right now, Jerry, and I'm I'm so excited to share them with you because I, I think they're very interesting facts given this decision point. I like reached. facts. Yeah, they're they're also like, you know, facts sometimes are our friends. Other times they can be a little warped to present whatever whatever narrative you want. And I'm kind of warping these facts to I guess razz you a little bit and give you a little bit of doubt. I don't know why I'm doing that. I'm not a very good friend, but I want to point out the fact that for the first time since basically I started doing coverage on the SCG tour, there were zero copies of Is It Phoenix anywhere in day two. Zero copies of Is It Phoenix. Now, the one almost exception to that was Lexi Zavalia, and she was playing Jeskai Phoenix. And all it was was just Path exile included in the typical phoenix deck which is interesting given what you were just saying but more importantly it seems like everyone else has given up on this deck are they justified or are they just making a mistake well if no one chooses to play the deck obviously there aren't going to be any copies in day two so i i understand why as a whole people are choosing to not play is it phoenix but there's also a lot of things that you can do to the deck currently to to make it better against the things that exist now. And I don't think a lot of people were doing that. I think that they were playing with the older versions and just saying like, oh, I lose to Hogak, I lose to Burn, I lose to Tron. Like, why why even play this anymore? And I, like Ross wrote an article about how it was time to put down Is It Phoenix? And I wrote a rebuttal article basically that was just like, no, actually, I think it's completely fine right now. And yeah, people have not really adapted or made those changes. So most of your adaptations you're talking about here are geared towards Hogak, and correctly so. We're doing the step three process right now and trying to uh, exploit some of the deck's weaknesses. But I, I don't know. Are you a little bit concerned about matchup win rates? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this article on Channel Fireball. That's a combination breakdown of Grand Prix, Barcelona, and Minneapolis, and these numbers for Is It Phoenix, they're not impressive. And not only are they not impressive against Hogak, where it's quite bad, there's a bunch of other bad matchups too, quite frankly. Well, I played Jund at the last MC, and Jund is like a 45% deck, right? Like that that's the running joke. But and you weren't thrilled about that decision. Like doubling down oh, on that no. doesn't seem like the best take here. Oh, no. I was going to say that, well, Phoenix looks like a 40% deck, so now I'm excited. <laughs> That's all you no. have to do is just push it a little further. No, if if you're if you're playing the old versions of Phoenix, I I agree that what has happened where the metagame has shifted, like not only is Hogak the best deck and Phoenix is bad against that, but the decks that have popped up as a response to Hogak, like Burn and Tron, those were also bad matchups for Phoenix. Right. However, however, the metagame is set now enough to the point where if you do things like you know, not try and play these longer games with like Aria of Flame, just try and get them dead as quickly as possible and back it up with Vapor Snag, Set Adrift, like things that actually handle the 8-8. If they don't exactly turn to Hogak you, I don't think it's that bad. And by that, I mean, I, th- I think it's like actually good. If they could turn to Hogak you, I think the number that came back was like 58% of the time. Uh, Yeah, that is accurate. That was another Channel Fireball article from Frank Karsten, which is like, that puts it into perspective, and it's just like, damn, you know? Yeah. It's damn. just absurd. Damn. Go to my step four. Play Hogak. That's step four. Let me tell you about step four. 
I guess one thing I'll point out is that I think it's neat that all of these steps can yield a functional deck. Step one, playing the best deck. You know, that's very easy. Just I like this deck quite a bit. Step two, identify true bad matchups, if any. Why aren't these a part of the metagame? Well, if you find something that's just not a part of the metagame because nobody knows about it or people forgot about it, you could certainly have yourself a very nice deck to take to a tournament from step two. Step three, we see your process, Jerry. It's gotten you to an Is It Phoenix deck that you are, I don't know if I even want to use the word happy with. You are registering, apparently, and that's good. You have a goal in mind. You've tuned it uh, in contemplation of what other existing decks have done to be successful. And now we're going to come to step four. And this is just where I would be going into this weekend. And I think if your primary goal, Jerry, was to... Like if you needed this tournament, if you had to qualify for something or actually it wouldn't even have to be about you. I think that's the only way you could ever get yourself motivated. Like if you had to play this tournament to save my life, you would be playing Hogak right now. And I think the thing to do is in step four to consider the mirror and think about how far you can go in getting an edge while still maintaining reasonable matchups against the rest of the field. Isn't that just the way to go in this tournament? And that's a little bit different than step one because if if you decide that Hogak is good against basically everyone and there are some bad matchups, but ultimately like Hogak is the deck that is going to be the thing that you're going to have to beat to win the tournament, like that is why you look at step two and step three is to try and get an edge. Like what is the biggest way for me to gain an edge in this situation? Sometimes it is, you know, dusting off Vizier. Uh, sometimes it's maybe tuning, is it Phoenix or whatever, but if you can get a sizable edge in the mirror, you just broke it, you know, straight up. Like you are, you're going to have matchups like burn and things of that nature that are going to be tough. And maybe you can do things like add more collective brutalities to your deck. But if you figure out a way to beat the mirror while not losing to everyone else, like that's game. And I don't think that there is any reasonable, uh, argument that you can make to play anything else, assuming that, you know, I was playing for one of my best friend's lives. Right. And I, I think we've seen some of this. I think the first really step forward deck that came out of this whole process was when Hogak picked up for Force of Vigors. I think that was a big change in the way the mirrors played out. Uh, some people even advocating drawing in the mirror just because having the card to pitch to your Force of Vigor was so important. Uh, and you just you just wanted access to more cards. I had a feeling you wouldn't like that one. But still, it, it was an adaptation and a way that people thought they were getting a significant edge in the mirror. And quite frankly, in the Hogak deck, Force of Vigor is just an incredible card. And maybe in the format at large, we should just phrase it that way. Force of Vigor is kind of bonkers. One of the few pitch spells that doesn't have inherent card advantage and just targets a very, very relevant permanent at the time you want to be targeting it. Like in most cases, you want to be playing the spell on your opponent's turn anyway. You're pretty happy about it. So I, I think we're still seeing how important Force of Vigor is going to be in this format. But the question is, what do we do next? Is there another move in step four How else can we get an edge without sacrificing too much to the metagame at large? And that's why I think something like main deck leyline, just not realistic. There's got to be a different move you look to make. See, I kind of think the opposite, actually, where depending on which version you're playing, uh, the one I was advocating for was Hedron Crab, and I had four kind of flex slots that I used as two Fatal Push and two Assassin's Trophy. 
Mm -hmm. And I don't think you really need those cards anymore. And in the Jund versions or for some reason, people are playing green black with a bunch of unplayable cards and not playing faithless looting and not really gaining a whole lot there. I think there are just cards that you can cut and play ley lines and it doesn't affect you that much. Like Shriekhorn is so bad. Insolent Neonate is so bad. Uh, certainly nobody's over the moon about those cards. Everyone sees them as a weak point of the deck. And there has been a rotating cast of basically clowns rolling through that spot, be it Lotleth Troll or Insolent Neonate, Shriekhorn, Golgari Thug, Glowspore Shaman. I, I, they've all shown up at some point. And pretty much everyone agrees they're all completely dispensable. You do, you, they are not required for the deck at large. So in that environment, Leyline of the Void is interesting. I just think that you're going to have a hard time navigating day one. I mean, maybe this is like, we don't talk much about this, but I do think your decisions in GP should probably be contemplative of the number of buys you have. If you're a three-buy player in this tournament, maybe I like this quite a bit. Maybe Leyline of the Void is the way to go. And as you go down the scale from two by one by zero by, it becomes less appealing. It's very nebulous because the the last few GPs have all had like 10% representation of Hogak on day one. So it's Correct. not like you're, oh, like everyone who's 3-0 is going to be playing Hogak because it's, you know, the only good deck and what all the good people with buys are going to play and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't think that you can make that sort of judgment and have it be correct. I think the, if you if you want to use the sort of like backwards logic to justify it, it's just like, well, if I want to win the tournament, I have to go through all these hogaks and look at all of their their day two percentage, blah, blah, blah. You know, like you can justify it however you want. I, I think the real argument, though, is that there's 10% of hogak in the field. And if I cut some very, very mediocre cards from my deck for ley lines, and I'm not necessarily saying you should play four, but... If you're you're cutting some insolent neonates for like two or three ley lines, I don't think it really changes things that much. I really don't. Well, we'll have to see if that does prove to be the move this weekend. I guess I could bring this back to present standard as well. A card I would point to basically having this effect, Agent of Treachery. I think that was a really big add to the Scapeshift decks. Uh, winning the Teferi Wars straight up on its own a lot of the times is an interesting place to be. And that often is the most important thing in any Teferi-based matchup. It doesn't have to be a pure mirror. It's any deck that has Teferi on the opposing side of the battlefield. Usually the counter magic consists of Dovin veto, Dovin's veto in the post-board games. So I think that card was very much in consideration of the quote-unquote mirror and how far you could go while still maintaining your edge against the rest of the field. And we often see these small pieces of tech just pop up that are really, really game warping. And that's what I love out of my sideboard cards. It's just something that has a larger effect than, oh, this card does something in this spot, or this allows my deck to have slightly more removal in a certain instance. Those things are important, but the real game changers, the real tournament swingers often come in these splashier effects. And I think something like Agent of Treachery is a good example of that. But main deck Leyline of the Void could go just as far. Yeah, I I see the parallel. I, I do think it's like weird and different to compare them because, you know, Treachery has text against everyone no matter what. But yeah, the the same the same thing basically happens, right? Where it's like 
Scapeshift shows up. It is basically the best deck. It's still in its infancy. It has, it's very, very rough mm-hmm. and does well in a few tournaments. People adapt to it a little bit. Everyone just jams Legion's End in their deck or whatever. And then Scapeshift uh, kind of moves away from being a combo deck into just being a control deck. You start seeing like main deck time wipes now and mm-hmm. people are shaving on Scapeshift. Personally, I think Golos is just better than Scapeshift as a card. Mm-hmm. The the list I'm playing right now just doesn't have any Scapeshifts in it. And I'm very happy with that. But yeah, and then you end up with Agent for the mirror match for what people were normally doing against you, which was trying to play both Teferis. And you just end up with an absolute monster and it's so good. And I don't, I don't think you can really say the same thing for Leyline, especially since if you play at a standard tournament, the field's going to be like 20 or 25% scape shift. And the day two percentage is probably going to be higher than Hogax day two percentage, even though Hogax day two percentage is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a, a lot of the parallels are, are definitely there. And one of the best ways to get an edge in the mirror is to just, be able to win game one when they aren't able to do anything. Like no one has force of vigor main. Some of them have assassins trophy and maybe they can get your ley line that way. But even then it's like they, they have to skip their turn two and give you a land. Like you're still up on that exchange for sure. Uh, but most of the time, like you're just going to ley line them and they're going to concede in game one, which is pretty incredible. And then for, you know, the people who say that they don't want to play mirror matches because it's all coin flippy or whatever, it's like, well, it's not a coin flip anymore. You know, you're just a straight favorite. Yeah, sizable favorite. And uh, if you happen to make the elimination rounds, man, do you get paid on that? (laughs) Then able to mulligan to your ley lines, not a bad place to be. Just quickly circling back around to step four and scape shift. I I think the first step four adaptation was deputy detention. I think when that became a main deck inclusion, that was really... Uh, consideration of the mirror. And I know the first games I was playing where I had main deck deputy detention and the format hadn't moved to that point. It was a joke. I mean, I just couldn't lose the mirror anymore. It was almost impossible. And the card was good elsewhere too. Like that's the dream scenario. And maybe that doesn't exist with Hogak. Maybe it is something as narrow as Leyline. But when you find a card that fundamentally changes the mirror and you're just like very happy to have in other spots, man, are you in a good position for that tournament? Right. And I mean, we're in a situation now where it's like the the only really effective cards against Hogak are things like Leyline of the Void or Ensnaring Bridge or whatever. And the fact that Hogak is the best deck means that people can't really play other graveyard decks because they're just going to get got by all the splash damage, you know? So like, yeah, your ley lines are probably going to be pretty bad against everyone else. And like, you know, maybe that's a reason to not play Is It Phoenix or whatever. But yeah, I, I still think that like maybe you play three mirrors in the Swiss of a GP. And if in maybe two of them, you have Leyline in your opener, you just get two free game wins. And then in other matchups, like you draw it later and you just loot it away or you just put it on the battlefield. Maybe it does something. Maybe it shuts off a Snapcaster or whatever. Not bad. But yeah, I mean, if I were playing Phoenix and I got Leylines in game one by Hogak, it's like, well, this matchup's already bad and I'm, leaning on set adrift pretty hard. It's like, well, Leyline just kind of gets that too. So it is sort of embarrassing. Yeah. So my first MCQ, I, I played main deck Leyline thinking that the deck would be preposterously represented. It really wasn't. It was probably sub 10% of the field. And I, I thought it was a mistake afterwards. But round one, I played the mirror, had Leyline and actually almost lost. It was kind of a frightening game where my opponent just had like 
I think four grave crawlers over the first three turns and had a very reasonable beatdown plan where I, while I didn't do all that much, uh, did ultimately win. But the next game I played was against Hardened Scales, and it was actually huge because of the interaction with Arcbound Ravager, and it single-handedly won me that game too. So it was weird how you could find these these weird spots for the card to matter. But uh, on the whole, I think that it's a risky move for this GP because this deck has been so oddly disincentivized to be picked up due to this overwhelming band presence. And usually when we're talking about these best deck scenarios, like you said, in the instance of Scape Shift, you should be looking at a very large percentage of the field and you're just not getting that kind of representation here for Hogak. Given the win rates though, it may still prove to be right to just go ahead and hard target and hope you can find small uses for your Leyline of the Void elsewhere. Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on what you're cutting, where if you're playing the four-color version and you have those slots for fatal pushes and trophies, like there's there's matchups like humans where if you just go without that stuff, it just gets way worse, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the Jun versions that aren't really playing those cards and are deciding that they want four Lotleth Troll, which I think is fine, and it's like you have neonates and treecorns and it's like, maybe those are supposed to be fatal pushes, you know, like maybe people are just building their decks wrong. And like, that's one of the reasons why human is humans is doing okay against Hogak. But like, if you're, if you're telling me that I have the choice between registering insulin, neonate or ley line, I'm like, you're going to get more value out of ley line. And it's not close, but you could certainly make an argument for push maybe still being necessary. Well, we'll have to see what ultimately happens in this last Hogak tournament. Anything else you want to say about best decks as we wrap this topic up? I understand with BNR looming and how difficult it is to just shift gears in modern already just to, you know, buy up a whole new deck. Right. Why people are not adopting this in mass and like, you know, the games aren't fun. Like it would be different if this were like a, like a Bant blink deck or whatever. Like I think people would just be all about that. Yeah. But yeah, this deck is just kind of silly, uh, sort of busted, not a whole lot of fun, has a bunch of cards in it that are not good anywhere else. You know, like my $20 grave crawlers is not like I'll really be able to play them if Hogak gets banned. So I get it. I completely understand why people are not trying to invest in this. And it's like, do I want to spend maybe $1,000 for a shot to queue for the MC? It's like, no, I'll just play my Phoenix deck or my Blue White deck or my Tron deck that I already have. And my win rate is going to be lower on average. But like, you can still win. You still have a chance, you know? Of course, these are some typically foreign arguments to Jerry Thompson. As someone who has routinely lectured me about making sure I'm maximizing my chances to win, it feels odd to hear you say them, but I think they're legitimate. And you just have to be contemplative of a very odd situation that we're presently dealing with. I will push back a little bit on your point that Hogak is unfun. I think that as far as a awful, horrible, broken deck goes... It's among the most fun ever. Like you think about how these things usually go and compare it to even Eldrazi Winter or just historically broken decks, you know, nonsense like Jar and things like that. This is way closer to acceptable. I mean, it still has to be banned. I'm not even trying to make that argument. It's just when you play games, you occasionally do feel like you're playing magic and making decisions where in a lot of other instances, that was just completely absent. I mean, that's when your draws are bad, though. It's like... 
Sure. You know, I, mold, I mold the four, didn't draw an Eldrazi Temple or Eye of Ugin, so my, my spells actually cost real amounts of mana and the game was close. It's like, that's not an indictment for the deck being like not unfun, you know? It, it, you're putting like 12 power into play on turn two. That's what you're trying to do every single game. And it's just really stupid. Right, but I, I mean, I don't think you do that all that often. The If that was... If that was what made this deck, is what I heard for for a turn two single Hogak, yeah. If that was what made this deck good, it would be an answerable problem. The issue is it also has this ability to be removal proof and to grind and to handle disruption very effectively. It does all of these things very well. It's not just a clear. It does one thing and it's completely absolutely busted. Whereas I think these other decks tended to have a bit more of that to them. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about like combo winter type of stuff, like, yeah, obviously those decks, those decks were a little bit more linear. Absolutely. But you also mentioned earlier how, you know, the the Hogak deck has a lot of very early virtual kills. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a sign of bad things where you turn to Gak someone and then even if they path it, it's like maybe you had a Vengevine to go along with it or you're you're already very far ahead, right? And yeah, like... None of their cards do anything. The, the game is virtually over. You get this feeling like, you know, you have agency. You're like, oh, look, my opponent's like trying to do these things, interact. But it's like, I uh, know it's, it's over. I'm, it's over. I'm not trying to argue the deck is defensible or like should stay around or anything like that. I just think it's it's slightly less worse than other really, really bad scenarios, which isn't much comfort. I understand. Yeah. So in general, I like graveyard decks. I Same. have... A, a massive love affair with Seder Wayfinder. I like Gravecrawler a decent amount. Stitcher Supplier should probably be banned at some point. <laughs> I, I like all these cards, you know? I like doing generally more fair things with them. That is more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But, like, I, I like it when the decks have to take a bunch of game actions, but when I am the opponent and my opponent is taking a bunch of game actions and I'm not really doing anything... And they're just generating like, you know, 10 free mana on a turn. It's like, well, this is this is dumb, you know? Well, let, let me ask this. Think about the two experiences as a player. Which is more fun to play, Eldrazi or Hogak? And I think it's Hogak, not even close. Yeah, I don't know. I, f- I feel like people maybe have more fun casting Reality Smasher than they do casting Hogak. Like, Reality Smasher, it seems like your opponent might still be in it. But like, Hogak is just so offensive where it's just like, yes, I'm dead. I don't know. I, I know, like all the game actions. I'm, I'm addicted to game actions. You give me a lot of little finicky things I can do yeah, and I get pretty yeah. excited. Dude, we were playing Amulet in 2012, both of us. You know? <laughs> right, that is true. Certainly have a type. So I, I get it. I understand how that is appealing. I just, I don't think it's in the right way for sure. And it's also what is fun for me might actively not be fun for my opponent. And obviously all of this is subjective or whatever. It's like maybe my opponent likes sitting and watching me do all these game actions and, you know, figure out exactly what tiny specific line I'm trying to do to get maximum edge or whatever. But I think most people are just like, I'm bored. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thankfully this will be the last weekend. We have to be bored. Fingers crossed. Please, please, please don't do anything silly. That's all I ask. Don't do anything silly. Yeah. Just ban everything until Citrus supplier is, able to just mill grave crawlers and then I can cast undead auger or whatever, and then I'll be fine. 
<laughs> That's our end goal. That's the end goal for modern. You heard it here first. I think it is. If Undead Augur is a good card, I think the format's in a good place. That's probably true. Yeah, if, if y'all are playing standard, play Golos. Don't play Scapeshift. I had messed with Scapeshift list, Scapeshift for a long time. Never quite pulled the trigger on it. Didn't think I had it there. But I will take a look at your most recent list because I understand very clearly from a strategic expect strategic perspective why that's so appealing yeah everyone has all their legions ends and deputies and stuff like that and you just don't ever care yeah just go slow yeah you just golos up a second field golos is so big it doesn't die to anything if you get to activate it it is very fun for you Mm -hmm. uh maybe not your opponent and then you can like spike a nexus of fate off it you got to be excited about that i'm always excited to see a nexus and fate nexus of fate on the stack yeah, so, I mean, this this deck is basically made for you. A bunch of tiny game actions. Nexus, sold. What, what more could you want? Completely sold. All right, so every week we solicit the fine folks in our Discord for uh, questions. We pick our favorite question, and that person gets an arena deckless enamel pin. They are wonderful. They are. I display mine proudly on my arena deckless play mat which also at some point will be making its way into the hands of our lovely patrons soon uh next shipment is is september so uh i got some work to do once i'm back home for this gp jerry just locks himself in a garage and ships things for three days straight comes out with like paper cuts all over his hands it's kind of incredible to see yeah it's it's more like a week but (laughs) i short sold it so the, the question we picked this week is a little bit on the lighter side, and I think that's fine. I think there is a lot of doom and gloom with uh, Hogak in modern, and we, we want something to look forward to, and we have things to look forward to. So this question comes from Michael Higley, and they ask, what is your favorite thing to explore in the cities where you travel to tournaments? And I, I'm also going to talk about things that I am looking forward to because of these things. But go ahead. Well, I, I wish your answer was suitable internet connections because we have, we have battled <laughs> with your internet connections for approximately three hours as we have attempted to record this episode. Yeah. But obviously forget, it's I, not. Hold on. Hold on. I also have to point out that I forgot my microphone. So right. I, had to, I had to Uber to Best Buy to get right. one. So it, this has been maybe the longest process for recording an episode ever. Oh, definitely the longest process ever. But... Uh, on a more accurate note, the things I, I really love to explore in new cities, and it's rare that this lines up, but I'm so, so excited when it does. I love when I can catch a concert at like a cool venue in the city. A couple that spring to mind was I saw Def Heaven at GPLA uh, in the Wiltern, I think it's called which is like this awesome old theater in LA. And that was amazing. And I love not only the musical aspect of it, but I love seeing these venues, especially venues with character. Uh, another one that comes to mind was at uh, GP Richmond a few years ago. I went with some friends to the National in Richmond to see Amon Amarth, which is a band I'm not super into, but just like we were at the GP, there was a concert going on and it was actually an awesome show. We had a really good time. So one of the first things I do when I go, when I have an event on my calendar is go to like that city's concert calendar and see if there's some cool show I could take in. 
Uh, so that's always my first check. My second check is just food, any kind of good food I'm always down for. I like really getting recommendations from locals. I find that's a better way to go than just trying to yelp something up. Like just got back from Richmond, in fact, where there's a Korean place that you and I have been to a bunch of times, Jerry. I went there again with uh, Nick Miller and Craig Kremples. We had a nice meal there. Uh, nice. Jay Kogi, it's called. It's pretty close to the convention center. Definitely yeah. recommend that one. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was a nice find, too. That's just like a two-block walk from the hotel, just like mm-hmm. random street corner, not near anything, really, you know? And 100% credit to Josh Cho, I think, for finding that one. Yeah, yeah. Cho was the first one to tell me about it and definitely enjoy that one. It's on my list now every time I go back to Richmond. I actually think Nick Miller might have went twice because I went with him on Saturday and then he messaged me late Sunday night and was like, what was the name of that restaurant again? So he might have gone back there <laughs> for seconds. It was quite good though. So yeah, you know, pretty much the expected stuff you would do when you go to a town, but with a little bit more emphasis on music than I think most people have. Dude, to be young again. I used to do what you do where it was like, oh, you know. We're- I'm older than you. What are you even talking about right now? Uh, you're in better shape than I am, I think. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I don't know. Anyway, I I used to do this a lot too. And like this this mattered uh, a little bit more in early, like, uh, what, what do you call like the 2010s or whatever? Don't you call them the aughts? Is that what they're called? The oddies? No, just like the aughts. That's the, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. It's the, in the 2010s, like the early SCG tour days, right? Where it's like, I'm traveling to all these events basically like every week. And I would, because I did not have a lot of money, I would book flight to flight to flight and not go home for three weeks because it was cheaper to just get the one ways, find someone's couch to crash on and, and do that. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to be in all these cities for the week. So if there's like a Tuesday show or something, I could go catch it, you know, and it very rarely worked out. But like when it did, it was awesome, especially if there were people there who also wanted to go, you know, right. It is just some of the most fun things that you can do is like things outside of magic with people who you are friends with, but don't necessarily get to hang out with because you don't live in the same state. Uh, So, dude, I'm right there with you. But now I'm just like, I'd rather just go to the hotel and order room service and, you know. I know. I, I, you know, I feel lazy. that too. I understand. I, I feel that too. There's a lot of nights where I'm like, uh, I'll just go back and lay down. And I'd say it's probably about a 50-50 split between the two. But I just think like, what am I doing all this for if I don't take time to appreciate the places I'm going to? Like, you, it has to be more than just faceless convention centers that you can't distinguish from each other. If you're really going to make something out of your magic experience, you have to get to know the town a little bit. You have to find more than just hotel rooms. And I, I promise I empathize with the feeling. I feel it so hard so many times and it's often a struggle, especially like on coverage dates where I yeah, when generally, you're working. yeah, I find myself exhausted at the end of the day and I know I have to wake up early the next day to do it again. And I'm just like, only thing I want to do is go to bed right now. Uh, but right. I try and make an effort to do more than that and really get a little bit more local flavor wherever I'm at. Yeah, the, the concert thing has been very popular in like D.C. or uh, Baltimore area. Like there's mm-hmm. almost always like a good concert on any given weekend. And so there, there have been like a lot of uh, shows that I've heard of people going to and it's like, you know, I've considered going or whatever. But even the last couple shows that I got tickets for in Seattle, I just ended up not going. We got to fix that, Gerald. We got to get you back on that I concert know, man. Grind. I know. And 
I, I it's it's one of those things where in in the moment I'm just like, do I really want to go? No, but like if I do go, I know I'll have fun and maybe I'll pay for it the next day, just being exhausted, like staying up too late, whatever. But it, it is worth it, right? Because those those are like the memories that you create. And those yep. are the, short, the stories that you get to share with people and everything. And I have a few of those and they're great. But right. during PAX East, I mostly said yes to things, even though it was stuff that I would not normally do. So it was like going to some Acer Predator party and just nonsense stuff, right? And it's not even like a concert of a band that I want to see. It's just this random party. I don't know what to expect. And it's like, yeah, it was fun. And I, I should try and do more of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, putting yourself out there is good. And I think that, you know, my wife and I basically had this experience where we had a few concerts in a row where we just bailed at the last second. Like I know we had yep. phosphorescent tickets we didn't go to. And the next day we were like, you know, that was kind of stupid. Like we're not doing too much with the time right now. And then we had another situation. It was actually for, it was during GP Seattle. Obviously we live here, so it wasn't like we were traveling, but uh, during GP Seattle, there was a Coheed and Cambria show and we both have seen Coheed many times. We both love them and it came nighttime and we were both like, eh, I'm kind of tired. And we were just like, you know what? This is stupid. <laughs> Let's just go. We need to make sure we go to these things more often and stop acting out. We had an incredible time. It was so much fun. And now we just have recently been leaning into just saying yes and just going more often. We're going to see Drab Majesty next week, which I'm really excited about. And then there's this really like crazy stretch of concerts in Seattle that feels like it's straight from 2000. There's a weekend where the shows at the park, very close to my house, about five minutes from my house, are Cake and Ben Folds 5, which I'll definitely go to. And the next night is Death Cab for Cutie. And I'm like, it feels like 15 years ago, but I'm Damn. into this and I'm going to go back to back. So I'm pretty excited for that too. But is the park a place or are you just talking about like the park in Bellevue or what do you mean? It's called Marymore Park. In, okay. It's like on the border of Bellevue and Redmond. Um, and they have like a concert venue there. And that's where we saw Coheed. And it's a beautiful concert venue. If you're ever in the area, you should definitely check it out. It's nice, like outdoor lawn seating. Uh, and there's food trucks all over the place. And these cool, like, I think they're called Edison lights. They're like they're the old-fashioned light bulbs that they have on strings all over the place. And it's in the middle of pines. And Seattle's weather is always perfect, as we've discussed at length here on the show. So it was, it's just like a really beautiful venue and a great place to see a concert. Yeah, man, I don't know that I could even justify to myself not at least, you know, going and checking it out if it was five minutes from my house. Like right. I was talking about, you know, driving 40 minutes into Seattle from Renton mm -hmm. or whatever. So a little bit different, I think. If it it's was just right down the street from me, I think I would have to go. Yeah. You know, I'm very lucky to live in a very cool neighborhood that has a bunch of cool stuff going on all the time. But I still find the effort is generally worth it, even when you have to push a little bit harder. Yeah, it is. I mean, it definitely does not feel like it in the moment, but I don't nope. think there's ever, ever been a time where it, it was something, you know, like a, a concert of a band I liked where I go and I'm just like, oh, that wasn't worth it. You right. Know? It just, it doesn't happen. Yeah. I can count bad concerts I've been to on one hand. Yeah. So for, for upcoming events, just in general, uh, there's MC Richmond and SCG Con on back-to-back -back weeks. Mm -hmm. So I should, I'm, I'm probably going to stay on the East coast during that time because it makes sense to rather than flying back to the West coast. And I should, I should look at shows, see if there's anything going on in the area. Cause even like renting a car, going to Charlotte or 
you know, something along those lines isn't that crazy. So. Yeah. And Richmond, as I mentioned, the national is a, a great venue. And I find every time I'm in town, they have something going on. In oh, fact, yeah. I, my flight got in late, but I missed Baroness was playing on Friday night. And I looked at my watch when I got in and I was basically like 30 minutes too late to possibly attend, but I was like, so, so close to just nailing it. <laughs> Had I known in advance, I would have planned my flight better. Well, we have the rare opportunity of instead of, you know, just being at the mercy of whatever shows are coming to our town, we, we travel a bunch mm-hmm. and then have all these different opportunities that you would not normally have, like even if you just stayed in Seattle. So take advantage of them. Yeah, you'll have other opportunities, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let's try saying yes a little bit more often and then you will can do. sign us out. I will say yes to the end of this podcast. That's game. Good luck.